0: well, I can guarantee that every single person in this room this week had desires of some sort. You had goals for your week, perhaps goals for your day, things that you either consciously or subconsciously wanted to achieve. So you could look at it and say, you know, you are right here. Your goals for the week are right here. And some of you did not make it to your goals. And you may be frustrated and you may be asking and wanting to blame, hey, what's in the middle? What stood in the way of me getting to my goals this week? Perhaps you had an unexpected expense that blocked you from making that purchase that you were hoping to make. Perhaps you had a friend or family member ask for your time and that kept you from doing that thing that you wanted to do. Perhaps for you it was Enjoy a nice night out, but then there was a fight right before and it ruined the night. Either way, there's you, your preferred outcome, and there's something in the way. This is very similar to what happens to us in our spiritual lives when we are seeking to follow God. There's us where we are today. There's God's desired outcome for us. And there's something in the way. And so I want to ask you today this simple question. What stands in the way of you doing Great things for God's glory. God's desires for you to do great things for Him. Great defined by Him, not defined by our world. What stands in the way? What's keeping you from accomplishing what God wants you to accomplish? What stands in the way? God's Word tells us. It shows us. It's really simple. It's one word. Excuses. Excuses is what stands in the way. Not external factors, not the situation you're in. Your excuses are what hold you back from doing what God wants for you in this moment. And so we are going to look at the life of one important leader that God had called in in historic times, in the Bible times, and we're going to see what his excuses were. But importantly, you need to know What are your excuses? Because your excuses are standing in the way. So let's give some examples here. Say today, God has prompted you, has called you to worship him without shame. What comes to your mind? If that perhaps for you is a challenge, what comes to mind first as an excuse? You need to write that down. You need to think about that, write that down and ponder it. Perhaps today... You're being convicted and challenged, and God's prompting you to pray with somebody, maybe after the service. And you're like, ah, that maybe that doesn't come naturally to you. Write down your excuse. What's your excuse? Why not? Write that down. Perhaps for some of you, God's prompting you to give financially to the work of the ministry. And that doesn't come easily for you. It's not something you want to do. And you have excuses. Write that down. Write that down. Perhaps God wants to go, you to go today outside of your comfort zone to share the good news of Jesus with someone. Maybe perhaps even someone from a different cultural background and you've got excuses. You're like, that's, that's not me. I don't know what to say. All these excuses. Write those excuses down. Maybe perhaps what God desires for you today is to pause for a moment, stop, being so busy working for him and remember that your identity is found in him first and not in your work for him first. Maybe that's a challenge for you. And maybe for you, you have a lot of excuses as to why that's not a good idea, God. Write them down. Maybe today you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you've got a lot of reasons why. Write those excuses down because those excuses are so critically important. And here's why. Your excuses are important because those actually pinpoint pinpoint the precise area where you need to grow in your knowledge of God. They're very helpful in that regard. They point it right out for you. So we're going to look at one of God's most influential leaders. His name is Moses. And we're going to see this, that before you can do great things for God, you must learn great things from God. You need to learn these things. And beautifully, your excuses zero in for you a customized plan of what you need to learn about God first. Now Moses is well known for his excuses and perhaps you've considered his life and looked at it and said, I would do better if I were in his shoes. Or perhaps you're here this morning and you're like, I don't even really know who Moses is or I'm not real fresh on his story, what happened to him. And so we're going to review so that you understand because before we get to where we are going in Exodus 3 and 4, you kind of need to understand the context. Understand where Moses is coming from. So rewind in your mind 3,600 years from today. 3,600 years ago, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt. This is not where God desired for them to stay, but it was where he allowed them to be. He had made promises. God had made promises to Abraham that the land of Canaan would actually be the land that the Israelites inhabit, a land flowing with milk and honey and a beautiful spot. But at the time there was actually a famine in that land. And so Israel migrated, Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob and his family migrated over to Egypt to survive. They started to populate in Egypt and live there. And the Egyptians got a little nervous because all of a sudden these Israelites are multiplying and there's a lot of them. And so they look at them and they grew afraid of the Israelites because really they're thinking they could like overpower us or certainly if outside enemies attack, if the Israelites side with them, we're done. And so the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites and made them work for them. So they put them under, under, uh, under slavery. And unfortunately for the Egyptians, that didn't work because the Israelites actually multiplied more when they were oppret- oppressed. And so the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, he gets this idea of population control because he's got he's to control this Israelite population from getting out of hand. And so he decides they're going to kill every baby boy. First, it starts with when the, the Hebrew women are in birth, he tells the midwives, if it's a boy and they're giving birth to a boy, as soon as it's born, kill it. Now the midwives feared God and so they didn't kill the baby boys and eventually Pharaoh started figuring out because there's still baby boys coming and he asks them and they say, well, the, the Hebrew women are just amazing. They, they, they have birth before we're even there. And we can't, like, we're, we're not even there at the birth. So Pharaoh takes it up a notch and he says, well, even if there's a baby boy and you're there after the birth, throw them in the Nile River. And so clearly it's not a good time. If you're in Egypt and you're being born as a, a boy, a baby boy, it's not a good time for you, right? It's not an ideal time. But this is a time when Moses is born. So it just shows God's sovereign protection of Moses. Because his parents, he was born to Israelite parents from the tribe of Levi. And these Israelite parents obviously wanted to save their son, so they hid him for three months. And when they couldn't hide him anymore, they put him in this basket in the river, saying a prayer, obviously, and saying, like, Lord, he's in your hands now. Awesome, awesome is that this basket finds its way down the river into the hands of none other than Pharaoh's daughter. Like, of all the people that could find this basket, it's Pharaoh's daughter, which you would think would actually be a very bad thing, because you think Pharaoh just put out this edict to kill all of them. His daughter's going to be on page, but... God, again, sovereignly works. And this daughter, Pharaoh's daughter, actually desires to keep Moses. So that's like a miracle. It's awesome. But it gets better because Moses' sister, his older sister, is watching this happen. And as soon as Pharaoh's daughter looks like, hey, she wants to keep the baby, Moses' sister comes out of the reeds and she's like, hey, do you need somebody to like feed and take care of the baby? And Moses' daughter's like, yeah, actually, that's a good idea. So Moses' sister goes, takes Moses' mother connects her with Pharaoh's daughter, and voila. Pharaoh's daughter actually pays Moses' mother to take care of her baby. Like, if that's not a miracle, that's awesome. Every mother in the room, if you get paid to take care of your child when your child could have been killed, that's awesome. That's God. That's God at work. Now, once he's a bit older, he had to move in with the Egyptian family, with his with Pharaoh's daughter, and get accustomed a, a to Egyptian ways. But Moses does not forget his Jewish roots. He does not forget that these are his people. So when he is grown up, the text says, he goes out to see his brothers, his his fellow Egyptians. In Acts 7, you'll learn that grown up is when he's 40 years old. So if you're in the room and you're not 40, you're not grown up. You have permission to be a kid, right? You're not grown up until you're 40, apparently. But after you're 40, you're grown up. So anyways... In Exodus 2 verse 11, it, it tells us that when he's 40, when he's grown up, he goes out to see his fellow brothers because obviously he's been trained in the Egyptian ways, He's kind of isolated from them and he goes out to see them and he sees one of his fellow, or fellow Hebrews getting beat by an Egyptian and he's not okay with that. So Moses looks this way, looks that way, makes sure nobody's looking and he does what any zealous Hebrew would do. He's like, I'm going to kill him. And he kills the Egyptian thinking, nobody will see it. But the problem is, people did. He had the right motives, perhaps, wanting to liberate his people, but at the wrong action, wrong time. And so, as a result, he had to flee because now the Egyptians are after him because one of their own, sort of, has turned their back. The Hebrews misunderstood what Moses was trying to do and actually rejected him as their liberator and deliverer and were furious with him because now maybe they're thinking, hey, Moses just killed an Egyptian, and we're going to get the blame. It's not going to go easier for us. So Moses hightails it out of there, realizing the Egyptians are after me, my fellow Hebrews are after me, and it's not a good situation. So he goes over to the land of Midian. And this is where, fast forward 40 years, Moses has established himself in the land of Midian, and we're going to pick up So he has a wife at this point. He has two children. He's working for his father-in-law as a shepherd, which is an occupation that the Egyptians thought was an abomination. You can read Genesis 46 on that. So in other words, when we pick up this story, Moses' life is not at all how he had planned for it to go. He's a failure in the eyes of his Egyptian family. He's a shepherd. He betrayed us. In the eyes of his Hebrew brothers, He ruined things. He made life harder for them. And so Moses is not at all the ideal hero of the story. And that's important for us to know as we encounter, as see his encounter with God in Exodus three. God is not absent in all of this. God is not unaware. Exodus two, 23 to 25 tells us that God saw what was happening to his people in Egypt. He heard their cry for help He remembered his promises, and now he's going to act. And guess who he's going to use? He's going to use Moses. So Exodus 3 starts. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is also known as Mount Sinai. This is the place where God would later hand down the law. This is a very significant place in Israelite history especially in the Exodus God here meets with Moses Moses is already traveling around in the area that in the future the Israelites will be going through and so it's amazing how God is preparing him verse 2 and the angel of the lord which we should understand as the angel of the lord this is god appearing to Moses a theophany he appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush he looked and behold the bush was burning yet it was not consumed And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses responds properly. He hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses learned a few things that we need to learn about God. Number one, God is holy. Take off your shoes. This place is holy. Not because the place is special, but because any place where God is, is special. Moses also learned that God is personal. And the Jebusites. It's a lot of different names there. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. God sees. God is compassionate. God cares. He's not absent. Even if his promises take longer to achieve than we think, he's not absent. So don't assume God is ignoring your situation. Don't assume his promises have failed. Verse 10. Come, I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And this is where Moses' voice is concerned, what we might call excuses, as many of us would in the same situation. Excuse number one. Who am I? Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, you could read that two ways. You could read that one way and say, that's a really humble statement. Like, who am I that you would choose to use me to bring Israel out of Egypt? Or you could read that as unbelief. Moses saying, like, who am I? I don't think you can use me. You can't do it with me to bring Israel out of Egypt. If we look at how Moses continues to respond there's probably a measure of unbelief in that. He's failed at liberating Egypt, his his fellow Israelites from Egypt once. For him to ask, who am I? Pretty natural. You're nobody, Moses. You failed once before. Either way, God patiently answers the excuse with truth. Moses needs here to grow. Verse 12, he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So the sign is that you'll come back to this mountain, and amazingly, he says, I will be with you. Adam's got water for me. Thanks, man. (laughs) The sign is, you're going to come back to this mountain, and I am with you. So notice... When Moses says, who am I? God doesn't say, Moses, you're amazing. Like what we do for a pep talk. You're amazing. You're so good. You've got this. You can do this. You can do this. You're amazing. Moses, God doesn't even answer that question. He says, I'm with you. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are, Moses. It matters who you're with. This is the answer. This is the answer for each of us. I'm sure more than one of us have tried to use this on God before. Who am I? Right? I'm a nobody. I don't have a title. I don't have a position. I don't have what it takes. Moses, he'd lost all the privileges he had in Egypt. Surely the best time for him to be God's spokesperson was when he was in Egypt, before he had blown it. But God knew that that wasn't. That wasn't God's plan. In fact, God's plan was to humble Moses, to help him realize, hey, this is all of God. This is not of you. You have to You have to imagine what Moses is facing. What is he facing here in this moment? Going back to Egypt. What's that like? It's not going back to the Bahamas for him. It's not going to a nice place. For Moses, this is going back to the place of failure. This is going back to the place of pain. He'd been rejected by his own people. He'd been rejected by his adoptive family. Nobody liked him. He had to flee. God is asking Moses not to ignore and run from the past. God is going, asking Moses to go back to Egypt. That's a big request for Moses. He's not just asking him to go back, though. He's asking him to go back and do it again with God's power. God does that to humble us, to ask us to face the past, not to run from it, to face our pain, not to ignore it. He does it to humble us, to show his strength. It's been said that humility is a right view of ourselves based on a right view of God. It's not thinking too low of yourself, because that's not how God sees you. He sees you not that way. It's not thinking too high of yourself, because God doesn't see you that way. It's seeing yourself the way God sees you, appropriately. Moses would go on to be called the most humble man on the face of the earth. And this was surely part of God's plan to humble him. God knew he was going to do great things through Moses, but he had to make Moses into his man first. Over time, this idea of God's presence being important would become so ingrained in Moses' mind that he would say things like Exodus thirty-three fifteen: If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. In other words, if you're not going with us, God, I'm not going there. We're not going. Please, please, please do not send us anywhere that you will not go with us. I hope that's our our attitude as well. The same is true for us today, that nothing of lasting value can be accomplished apart from the presence of God. Nothing. In the Great Commission, Jesus gives us these words, his marching orders essentially to us and to future disciples. And he says, you're going to go make disciples and I'm going to be with you always. That's hugely encouraging. That's where God's presence goes with us. It's a beautiful thing. So voicing your excuse of, who am I, is meant to teach you. It doesn't matter. It matters who's with you. Continuing on in our passage, it says this. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So this is potentially an excuse of sorts, what what am I going to say? Right? Again, it's hard to know whether to classify this really as an excuse or maybe Moses just wants to be clear. The Egyptians were polytheistic. The Israelite people might have been asking, like, what's the name of this God that you're coming in the name of? Is it is it truly the, the right one, our God? Either way, it reveals a lack of knowledge that Moses has about God. M- Moses wants to know God's name. He wants to know God's name. He wants more revelation of who God is. Exodus 6 verse 3 indicates that God's personal name, Yahweh, as we try to pronounce it. We don't don't honestly know how to pronounce it because the vowels weren't there. But this this name had not been revealed before Moses to the patriarchs. So God is revealing his personal name to Moses. This is significant. This is a special moment And in doing so, what he's doing is he's revealing more of his character. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. So essentially, answer number two is, I am who I am. This is my name. I am who I am has sent you. I am has sent you. The Lord has sent you. Those are all equated with one another. And they're actually linguistically very similar in how they're spelled and the the root word they're from. And it's meant to explain one another. So when they hear in the future, the Lord, that's Yahweh. That's how our English translations bring it about. The Lord, all capitals. When they hear that, they would hear, I am that I am. I be that I be. I I will be that I will be. This I'm uncreated. I don't depend on anybody else for my existence. I am God. I'm unchanging. I'm present with you. These are all things wrapped up into this awesome revelation God brings. Now, revealing that to Moses is not going to give a name that the Israelite people would recognize. It's not like Moses is going to say, "Hey, Yahweh has sent me." And they're going to be like, "Oh, I remember that name." Because Exodus 6.3 reminds us this is the first, this is God revealing it to him. So when he's asking, what, what, what am I going to say? God's actually giving him, I'm going to reveal more of my character through this name. I'm going to reveal more of myself, and that's going to show the people. So when you say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they get that. Now they also get, you're the I am, the self-existent, uncreated one. That's different than any other God. You're actually revealing more of yourself to them. So we have to ask ourselves, do we know God? Because here's the reality. You are not ready to do the work for God until you know the God you're working for. You need to know who God is. Now, I ask myself, do I know God? And I kind of, yes, I know God, but I don't know God. There's so much of God that I don't know. I know him enough to be saved, to have a relationship with him, but I'll spend the rest of my life and eternity understanding Comprehending more and more of who he is. To the degree that you know God, to the degree that you have relationship with God and are growing in understanding of him, I believe that's to the degree you'll be fruitful. We're the vine, he's the branch, we're the, he's the vine, we're the branches. We abide in him and then produce much fruit as we stay connected, understanding who God is. So, do you know God? God was about to do some incredible things through Moses, and Moses needed to learn this. Verse 16 and on, we're going to see just how incredible God is in what he intended to do. So it says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go up to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God." But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Of course, having that many people leave to go worship another God when you as Pharaoh think you're the God, of course you're not going to let them go, but God knows that unless they're compelled by a mighty hand. And so this is what God's going to do. Verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry and clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. You shall So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Maybe you've never read that before and heard that. That's incredible. So recap. God says, you're going to go and tell the elders. They're going to believe you. The elders of Israel are going to believe you. You're going to go to Pharaoh. Tell him he's not going to be impressed. I'm going to do my wonders. That'll convince him. And then you can leave. And not only do you get to leave, you get to leave loaded because you're taking it all. You're taking gold, jewelry. You're taking so much. You're plundering the Egyptians. They're going to give it to you. That, like, I don't know if you're like me, but at first reading, that's like, uh, it, I kind of get it, but it doesn't really compute. So let's like use a modern day scenario to kind of imagine what this might look like. Let's imagine that you tomorrow go into Walmart headquarters to the CEO of Walmart and say, I would like to ask that you release all 2.2 million employees of Walmart to come to my business tomorrow. And when they leave Walmart, they're just going to clear the shelves and bring it over to my business. How ludicrous is that? How likely do you think they're going to be like, yeah, sure, go ahead. No way. They're not, no way are they going to allow that. This is a picture of what's going on. Moses is asking for 600,000 men plus wives and children to come out of Egypt, to come out of Egypt to worship another God. So like a different business in a sense, Pharaoh believes he's God. He's saying, we're going to go worship another God. Now, he doesn't necessarily tell Pharaoh up front that, hey, we're going to plunder you at the same time, but this is what's going on. That's absolutely mind-boggling. For Moses to think, God's going to do this, that's beyond incredible, amazing. So it makes sense that Moses comes up with his next excuse, which is, they won't believe me. They won't believe me. Exodus 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they, that's the people of Israel, not the elders necessarily, not necessarily Pharaoh, that's later, but they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Clearly, that's not a message from God. God would not do something that crazy, outlandish, saying we're going to plunder the Egyptians when we leave. Have you been here for the last hundreds of years, seeing the slavery? That's not happening. So you can understand why Moses would have said this. They won't believe me. Because anybody coming with such an amazing promise of deliverance, you'd you'd meet with skepticism. God has an answer for his excuse, though, and he wants to show Moses more of himself. So he gives these three miraculous signs of God's power. Verse 2 of chapter 4. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of of their forefathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And when he had put it inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. It's a miracle. That doesn't happen. That's amazing. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood On the dry ground. These three miraculous signs that are given to Moses, Moses would use in front of the people of Israel to convince them that he was God's appointed deliverer. He would use yet more signs, some of those and more, to convince Pharaoh that this was actually God's will that they were supposed to leave and convince Pharaoh to let them go. The answer, though, to Moses' excuse, they won't believe me, is my power. God shows his power. His excuse of unbelief, God conquers and shows him more of his power. The staff was a sign of God's presence with Moses, and the miraculous signs were evidence that God was behind Moses. Now, come to our day and age, in the new covenant, God has given us a great seal of our redemption, you could say, a great sign of his power within us, which is the Holy Spirit. God has indwelt beautifully every believer in him with the Holy Spirit, with God in us, who shows his power through us, not in our strengths, but in our weaknesses. So when you say, God, you've given me this task of sharing the gospel, but I'm not a real good speaker. or I I can't convince them. God says, right. But my spirit convicts them so my spirit can actually make and show great power in your weakness and bring great glory to God which is awesome so the thing that you perhaps feel least capable of the th- the place where you feel least like you have something to offer may in fact be the place where God is going to be most glorified in your life Moses is not done learning because he has a fourth excuse and that excuse is i'm not eloquent now, how many of you use the word eloquent in your vocabulary daily? For Moses to say, I'm not eloquent is like to say, well, anyways, it sounds pretty eloquent to me, but apparently he's not eloquent is what he's saying. And God doesn't really challenge that. But here's what Moses says in verse 10. He says, oh Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. He, he's going up against Pharaoh and all his very smart people it maybe makes sense to be a little bit intimidated, but what's the creator say to his creation when creation's like, hey, I I can't do it. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? I I think I know, Moses, your abilities and limits. Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So the answer is, I will teach you. I will be with you. Years ago, someone told me that God doesn't call the equipped as much as he equips the called. And I think that's true. It stuck with me because it reminds me, God never calls you to do something that he will not resource you to do. That doesn't mean you have all the resources ahead of time. If you're like me and like things planned out, that you get to have all your ducks in a row before you go in before you go into that scenario or situation but god desires to accomplish things through you and will resource you to accomplish those we need to learn though to walk by faith and not by sight so moses didn't get every every word written out on a sheet for him this is what you're going to say to pharaoh right now but i will teach you and i will show you god's our creator he knows our limits and he can work through us. Now, up until this point, Moses' excuses have actually been fairly legitimate. If you were in this scenario, you'd probably make some of the same excuses, right? Like, who am I? And, you know, what am I going to say when they ask me whose name? And they won't believe me. And I don't, I don't have the ability to speak. So those are somewhat reasonable excuses. And that's okay. Because God teaches Moses God's patient. Nowhere does it say God was angry at Moses for those first four excuses. Your excuses are actually good because they point out the areas you need to grow. And when you grow in them, respond to those excuses and you're like, you know what, Lord, I need to grow and realize you're present with me. Your power will be made perfect in my weakness. That's a good thing. But when you've come to the conclusion of those things and you still have an excuse just because you don't want to, That's not okay. So here's Moses' fifth excuse. This is not a good excuse. It's not an appropriate excuse. It's a bad excuse. He says in verse 13, but he said, oh my Lord, please send somebody else. In other words, I don't want to do it. Send somebody else. Verse 14, this is super serious. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Not a good place to be. Moses speaks the words of God to to Aaron. Aaron speaks them to the people. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So the answer to Moses' excuse of send somebody else is basically, Moses, you're doing it. You still are doing it. I'm going to send Aaron. God is so gracious and so patient with Moses yet. He sends Aaron, his older brother, along with him. But Moses, you are still going back to Egypt you are still doing it you shall do it all his excuses have been answered but he still doesn't want to do it and god reminds him you you will do it because god has called him to it so what about you this is where we ask the question for our own lives do you have excuses areas where you've sensed god prompting you to action and you have not acted Excuses can help to pinpoint where you need to learn. But at the end of the day, if you say no to God, that's not going to work. Just look at all the prophets of the Old Testament. You get guys like Jonah. God told him to go somewhere. He said no. And then he did go. (laughs) God convinced him. Jeremiah, same thing. Like, "I I can't do it. Yes, you can. Moses, I can't do it. Yes, you will. God's calling you to it. Give the excuse so that you can learn, but don't just excuse for excuse's sake. Don't say no. So perhaps you're here this morning and maybe you're not even a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you probably have a list of excuses. Maybe somebody's explained the good news of Jesus to you and called you to it and you said, I'm just not there yet. What's your excuse? What's that point out where you need to grow? And are you just saying, ah, I just don't want to. I just don't want to. I just don't want to. God's going to pursue you. Make no mistake. God's going to continue to pursue. And we love that about our God. Perhaps you're here and you haven't dealt with a sin issue in your life. And you've got a list of excuses as to why. Grow through the excuse. What's that excuse teaching you about your knowledge of God and where it needs to grow? But don't make an excuse for an excuse's sake. Here's some excuses I've used that maybe you've used And what God maybe perhaps wants to, maybe, perhaps, God does want to teach you through it. So an excuse like, I'm too busy. So God calls you to something, and of course you're too busy because you've got your priorities, your things you want to do. And God wants to show you you're a limited human being with certain resources, and those are entirely to be centered around him and his priorities. God wants you to teach you that. Maybe you say, I'm too poor I don't have the resources. And God wants to show you how much he can do with a willing spirit versus a full bank account. God wants all of you. Perhaps your excuse is, I've got a family to think about. And God wants to show you he comes before your family. Moses himself, if you look through the text, it by all appearances, appears that Moses actually left his family partway on his journey back to Egypt, left, left his family behind, and spent time in Egypt, getting the the people of Israel out of Egypt without his family around. There was sacrifice that had to be made. Praise God, he was willing to make that sacrifice. Maybe your excuse is it didn 't work the last time. I tried that before, and god 's answer to you is i 'm with you this time though last time it was on your own strength this time i 'm with you. perhaps you say But it hurts. It hurts. I don't want to go back to that. To which God says again, I am with you. You need to face it. I'll give you the strength. Is your hurt the idol or is God the idol? Maybe you're just like Moses was at the end. I just don't want to. Well, God is graciously going to tell you, you'll do it. And here's how I'm going to graciously allow you to do that. Maybe he gives support. Maybe you get to be part of a team rather than a solo. Hey, that's that's an awesome privilege. But make no mistake, when God has a plan in mind, you'll do it. And it's so much better when we bow the knee now and say, I trust you, Lord. I I I don't know all the answers, but I trust you. And you just, enough with the excuses. God's not asking for you to give more than what you have. So he doesn't want 36 hours of your day for his glory. He he understands you have 24. He wants 24, but he's not not content with 22 hours of the day for his glory. He wants 24. He wants it all. But don't be surprised. You're going to feel at times you want to give more. You feel like you're asked for more than what you have. God asks for all that you have, nothing more. So let's be a church committed to overcoming our excuses by looking to God and asking him to show us more of who he is, knowing that All those answers to our excuses are all wrapped up in the sufficiency of who he is.